You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. You know, I don't know about you, uh, I'm excited that we're going to have finally our, our Christmas here and that we get to stay to enjoy that. As some of you know, we've been going through a little bit of a, a visa challenge and so we get to be here and enjoy the holidays and uh, just arriving not only is summer, but also my son-in-law's family are down and they love the Lord and to be able to enjoy that all under our home for the next month is something I don't take for granted. And, uh, you know, coming from a history like I did that was quite broken and bereft of healthy family relating, I especially don't take this privilege for granted. But can I say, as a December baby, I didn't always like the month of December, which sounds a bit counterintuitive, but let me explain. Uh, I think from my earliest childhood, I had a bad association with December and Christmas and holidays, and let me explain why. Uh, as a five-year-old, my mother is killed in an accident when she was shopping for my birthday, so as you can appreciate, that Christmas was a write-off of tragedy for the year, and then the Christmases thereafter were one of missing what should have been uh, that part of my life. And then when my dad finally did remarry, I was 11, and moving toward the teenage years and a, a rebel, well, then our blended family experienced a lot of tension. And so Christmas was not one of excitement and anticipation, except for stress and family tension and potential conflict. I know none of you know what I'm talking about. But, you know, Christmas then for me later in life, there were other experiences in the month of December that robbed me. I, I think of my dad suffering stroke after stroke and spent six years in a stroke rehab center where every Christmas we watched him ebb further away. And then even just a few years ago when my daughter was pregnant with our first grandchild, she contracted a very serious version of dengue fever and uh, was hemorrhaging blood in her system. And uh, it was touch or go for about 48 hours. And so I can so appreciate that while most of my Christmases, most of my Decembers, most of the holidays have been good, and I'm thankful, it certainly made me very mindful that for some of you right here, right now, you're more relating to the Christmas you endure rather than the Christmas you had hoped to enjoy. So I thought before we go further and still on the back of worship and prayer that we just might spend a moment and just focus some prayer here for each other. That if you're here and you're facing the prospect of family tension or if you're here and you're facing loss and it just stares at you and there's pain, that that matters to God because you matter to God. And you don't have to be chipper and put on a brave front, at least with Him. So let's just pause and, and let's invite the Holy Spirit to come and breathe life into these things that can rob us. So right now we agree, Holy Spirit come and speak to your children and tell them things that they need to know. That you see, that you are present, and that you care. Lord, your word says that you number the hairs on our head. And that little piece of data is amazing in that it tells me you are intimately, personally aware of detail in our lives. But your word beautifully also says that you save our tears, which means you overlook nothing in our journey, in our history, in our humanity, that it matters to you because we matter to you. 
So Lord, while others have a holiday before them to enjoy, some here are in a posture of having to endure. And so we pray, Spirit of God, you come upon them and that you bring them comfort where they need it, that you bring them solace and compensation and encouragement and words of life and that you give them dreams and visions and that you will reveal yourself to them in ways that will change the power of that painful thing and that they will catch their breath again in you and find that life is worth living even in tough times. Come, Spirit of God, and give your children what they need, lifting their burdens. Lord, for those who are going out, they are facing economic challenge. They are facing relationship tensions. Lord, so many circumstances like this interfere and rob our focus on you. So I pray, Lord, that you lift them above the fray and help them to find their focus that you are present and we pray that every scheme of the evil one to rob, to incite conflict, to take away peace in family gathering, that that effort of the evil one of flesh and devil would be bound and would be rebuked and that a way would be paved for your spirit of peace and life to prevail over tensions. That's who you are. We believe you would do that. And so we look to you, God, marking this day in December that you will hear us as we agree together for one another in this house who need these words of life. In Jesus' name we agree. Amen? Amen. You know, there was a particular Christmas where uh, I was now born again, but was not reconciled to my dad and my stepmother. I had been a wild child, and so when I got saved 40 years ago, uh, you know, God hadn't got it all mopped up yet. So I was walking on with God, but it would be almost five years before I would see my dad and my stepmother again. So I was working in a ministry, and I was in my early Christian education in school, and, and so everybody else scattered for the holidays, and I was left home alone. And I was full of self-pity. But wait, there's more. Then I got the flu, and so Christmas was the time for spewing. And... Uh, I was, by this point, very filled with maudlin self-pity, and it went something like this as I complained to the Lord. Everybody else is getting to have a nice time, and I'm not. I'm sure none of you have ever done that with God before, but anyway, I did, and, and I felt the Holy Spirit spoke to me, as he is gracious to do, and that he gave me, I don't know, a bit of an epiphany, a little revelation, to give me perspective in the midst of my self-pitying, and that was... Uh, he basically said this to my soul. Judge it and see if you think this sounds like God to you. Sigh, I did not come to give you a merry holiday. I came into the world to save you from your sins and make you my child, which you are now. Well, that gave me perspective. And I thought I'd pass some of that along to you to put Christmas, whether it's the Christmas you enjoy or the Christmas time of endurance, I want to cast it in light of a much bigger picture of perspective to encourage you. Because after all, if I were to call this message something, I would call it Christmas, the first of three promises fulfilled. So let's take a look at perspective. There we go. <laughs> Welcome to school. Now... Don't let all this put you off. We will walk you through it as we do. But I think it's useful to gain perspective because what happens to me probably happens to you too in our busy modern world. We tend to be very good at doing what comes next, but we get caught in that trap of doing what's next on the calendar. Next, what's the next day bring about? What's the next responsibility or burden? What's happening next at Christmas? Especially next at Christmas with all the family and all the food and all the frenzy and the gift buying and gift gathering and all of that. What's coming next? And we lose sight. 
that it's not our culture that should be defining and putting into a little box our perspective of Christmas. Because Christmas is the first of three redemptive promises that have been fulfilled. And you need to know the three promises because you are embraced in it. So here's what those promises are. We'll begin at the beginning. In fact, even before that, whatever was before the four-dimensional world that we know, time, space, the material universe, before it was created, God's word briefly refers to it as even before the foundations were established. Since God is without age, outside of time, space, there was something before all this came into being. And God was there. But then he did create in the beginning. God created the cosmos. And then at some point thereafter, whether you believe it was seven literal days or whether you believe it was a longer period of time in which the days are a metaphor, because in Hebrew language, when Genesis was written, the original language uses a term that is quite unique in Scripture, and that is the Hebrew word for day there could mean a 24-hour period or it could mean a long, long, long epic. It really doesn't matter the detail. We weren't there anyway. But we do know that God created, and at some point in all of this time space, he made the crowning glory of creation, made in his image, Adam and Eve, the lords of the earth. And then we know at some point after their lordship, they finally succumbed to the seduction and the temptation of Satan, dressed up in the skin of a serpent who beguiled Eve in the garden. She and Adam ate the fruit and thus, like a dreadful kind of computer virus, entered into the fabric of everything of the material world and your life and mine. We are fallen. And on the heels of that dreadful event, God speaks redemption. He speaks a promise. Genesis chapter 3, he says to Eve who first ate the fruit, Hey, In the future, through you, Eve, I am going to send the person who will come and fix it. So I'm not hanging it over your head. I am going to rescue humanity. And he will come through you, Eve, that is through woman, through a lineage, will come the person I appoint to rescue humanity from what has happened. The first promise, the first prophecy of God, the first prediction is that Jesus would come to save us from our sins. And that's the first promise that has finally been fulfilled. It took 4,000 years before Jesus arrived. So... The first promise, God would send a chosen Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the Christ, which is the Greek word. And Christ and Messiah mean the one chosen by God who will redeem humanity. So scripture obviously talks of this event in great number. In fact, there are 300 references to 61 specific predictions in scripture that God would send the Messiah. Even in Isaiah 700 years before the birth of Christ, he will be called Emmanuel, the God who is with us. And he will be born of a virgin. And these are very specific predictions. In fact, just one person satisfying eight of these predictions is equal to one in 100 quintillion. That's pretty amazing odds. In fact, one person satisfying 48 of these predictions is equal to one in 10 to the 157th power. That's a lot of zeros. 
In other words, astronomically, numerically, mathematically, practically impossible that anybody or anything could satisfy it except the Christ who did. So tick that box. First promise has been satisfied. After 4,000 years, he has arrived. And we look back over 2,000 years and celebrate that he came. But we tend to be distracted. Imagine if we think, when will he ever come back? How the people of that era before his arrival must have languished and wondered, will he ever arrive? Will the Messiah ever show up and save our people? And yet along the way, God in his faithfulness, he did send types of Christs to point the way, to remind us that God is working out a great big cosmic plan. And it may not happen in our 10-minute worldview for our consumer convenience, but God's still faithful to encourage generation after generation with the idea, I will come and save you from your sins. You're looking forward to that day, so don't give up on that day. I am not slack. I am deliberate and purposeful. So along the way, we have, you know, Adam and Eve. They were the lords over the earth. They... Well, abandoned that and gave Satan lordship, but Jesus reminds us he will come back and be the Lord over the earth. And then add to that, we've got Noah, the one who rescued a remnant of humanity in the ark of safety. Jesus is our ark, sparing us from judgment that we can be God's remnant for the future. He is a type of Christ. And Abraham is a type of Christ. One man makes a blood covenant with God. And out of that comes a lineage of humanity, a remnant for God. And through that comes Christ our Messiah. And you and I as Christians are grafted into that family lineage. The word Jew simply means a worshiper of God. And we are adopted in to that Abraham connection. Are you with me? Abraham, a type of the Christ. And then Certainly, Moses was a type of the Christ. The Jewish people found a gracious place in Egypt in the early days of Joseph, but then it all went astray as the government became, well, hostile toward the people of God. And 400 years later, the Jewish people are laboring and suffering oppression and slavery and the killing of their children and Yet Moses comes as the appointed, anointed deliverer sent by God. And he is like a type of Christ because he deals the double blow. He destroys the power of a corrupt state government that oppresses the people of God. But then Satan behind that government is also broken in power. And Christ one day will come to earth and deliver his people from both the corruption of the fallen world and its oppression. And Satan who is behind it energizing it. He is a type of Christ. And then even King David, though people overlooked him of the sons, he was the one picked by God and anointed and empowered who became both the shepherd and the king. And we serve a shepherd who is our king. So you can see that in God's faithfulness that the promise would finally be fulfilled, though it took 4,000 years, and that's a big deal to us on our time scale. God's ways are above ours, and he paints a picture like a drumbeat of his faithfulness in getting the promise fulfilled. But wait, there's more. So promise number one, done. Jesus has come and he has lived a life before us as an example of what it was like to have God with us. In fact, when Jesus is called the son of God, the Hebrew idiom does not mean the literal offspring or child of God like we assume. In Hebrew idiom, it meant the one who is like God. When it 
refers to Jesus' scripture, that is, when it refers to Jesus as the son of man. It doesn't mean he is an offspring of man. It means he is a God, the one like man, God with us, living his life, teaching his insights, doing his miracles to prove to us, I see you, you matter to me. I will help you. Hope in me. Then he not only lived his life before us and taught us, he became a light into the world, says scripture. But then, of course, he ultimately fulfilled his redemptive mission, which was not to spare his life and get married, live in the suburbs and have a happy life and be a consumer at the mall, but rather to sacrifice those things that could have been, including his own life, so that we could have eternal life embraced by God now and forever. So he died on the cross to save us from our sins. He is resurrected, and then he went back to heaven and then sent his spirit And this launched two things. His spirit launched the church age in which you and I almost take for granted as an assumption of the way we live our lives in faith. And also he launched into a hostile world the reminder that these are the last days. Now what we tend to think of when we think of last days is these are the last days of the human race. These are the last days before the end of the world. And that is a popular cultural moniker, but it's not the biblical fact. The fact is the last days mean the last days of satanic oppression and lordship over the earth before the Lord returns to gain his rightful throne and end all this oppression. It's those last days. And that's connected to the fulfillment of his promise. Because when it comes to the second advent, or the second coming of Christ, this is the most prophesied event in all of the Bible. The Bible has 32,124 verses. And about 8,200 of those verses are prophetic. That is about 27%. And of those prophetic verses, the second coming of Christ is mentioned eight times more in Old and New Testament compared to the Bible verses mentioning his first coming. So depending on your viewpoint, you may think the, the, the second coming of Christ is kind of irrelevant to your life It is a front and center piece in all of scripture. And the Bible calls it the blessed hope. And what happens in the first world, I don't know about you, I'm probably like you in this regard, that I I too want life to go on on my terms and I too want to grow old surrounded by my family on that day and I want to see my grandchildren grow up and get married and I have lots of personal ambitions to satisfy. And that's where like the return of the Lord is an infringement. Like, no, Lord, there's so many things I want to do. But you know what? Compared to the rest of the world outside the wealthy first world where they labor under poverty, disease, and oppression. If God does not come back to stop the madness, then, well, they have no hope except he will. And therefore, as scripture said, we should say all the more, come back even so it affects my personal ambitions. Come back anyway, Lord. You are the hope for the world, not a better system of governance, not me getting my life together. Because even if I get my life together, traffic won't be working in my favor. So come back, Lord. Come back and end oppression, end poverty, end injustice, end war. Come back. And he promises he will. And before he comes back, kind of like a pregnancy ripening, we move into the last of the last days. So the beginning of the last days was the church age launched by the coming of the Holy Spirit. But the last of the last days, Jesus gives us a clue when he says, as it was in the days of Noah. And some popular scholarship now recognizes that that one little clue infers like it was in the days of Noah. And 
People assume that means when humans were lawless, rebellious, immoral, violent. When have humans not been lawless, rebellious, immoral, and violent? That's nothing new. That's not news. But the inference in Genesis chapter 6 about the days of Noah is that genetic manipulation was happening to the human species. And that's the indicator. When we mess with, well, atoms to create weapons, and we mess with genetics to interfere with species boundaries, then it might be like the Lord who said, if I did not come back sooner than later and intervene upon that, no one would survive. That wasn't our risk in 1950, but it could be today. And so we can be grateful that crazy people don't get to make the final determinations of how the future unfolds. We have a God who will intervene in time, space, and take the reins of the human experience, and he encourages us to hope in his character that he will do this. And the last of the last days tells me the promise is on the way. Whether that's a hundred years from now, ten years from now, a thousand, or next week, we can look forward that if he fulfilled the first promise because people's lives matter, then people's lives still do, and his second promise, he will not fail. Then there is the third promise. It's the biggest overarching promise of them all in which the other two are, if you will, part of, and that is promise three. He's going to make all this suffering like it never even happened. He says that at some point when Christ comes back and then he rules the earth for a period of time, he literally rules the world. Scriptures tell us that he will be physically present. He will be based in Jerusalem and that people will live and die. There will still be a life cycle. People will marry and give birth. People will still be fallen. They will still need salvation. But the devil will be bound from the equation, and Christ will be present, so there won't be faith but fact. And so humans will live under a utopian experience that we aspire to, but our corruption does not allow us to succeed in achieving. And then at the end of that period, called the millennial reign, whether it's literally a thousand years or that's a metaphor, but at some period after Christ's reign, then God will bring us to that day of judgment. And there we will be embraced by him forever when we are his. And then he will cleanse the surface of the earth as he did with the flood, the first go around. The second go around will be with fire burning up all the accoutrements of accumulated human sin. And so there will be no more, well, souvenirs and DVDs and the experience of our culture, these fallen works of man will go, and God says he will create a new beginning with a new heaven and a new earth, and the old order will pass away. Just thought you'd like to know. So, let's take a look at what the Word of God says about that. Especially if you're here enduring. Hear these words. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. Revelation 21, verse 3. Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his, and God himself will be with them. In other words, separation from him will not exist. It will be like before the fall. Revelation 21 verse 4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be death, no longer any mourning, no sorrow or pain, for the first order of things will have passed away. In other words, in the beginning, 
Then there was a dreadful detour called the fall. Then there was a redemptive intervention in a series of promises fulfilled that bring us back to the original idea. Satan will not prevail. My plan will. And I will live in harmony and relationally with my creation. And death will be banished and suffering will be no more. The old order will be passed away. And all of us get to inherit this. Therefore... Moving backward to his return, Jesus speaking all of these words, Matthew chapter 24, verse 37, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the return of the Son of Man. Luke chapter 21, verse 34, therefore be careful, which probably means you won't, therefore be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with distractions, defilements, and the anxieties of life, and that day will close in on you unexpectedly like a trap. The inference here is that people will be going about their business and whatever the things are happening in the world that capture our hearts and invoke fear, life will still in some ways be continuing on in the way we assume, people marrying and buying and selling, but then suddenly the day will come. Be prepared. Because we will all face him. And I want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Oh, you were a messy brat but we corrected that. You fell down, but you got up. You got dirty, you washed off. You did not give up. You got up and kept walking toward me. So I look over your weak and perfect life, Sai, and I see that instead of seducing people or manipulating people or ripping people off, you used your limited humanity to bring blessing and benefit. And now I look over your life and see much less regret and a future of reward. Answering to God does not mean punishment. It can mean a future of reward and a life without regret. So be careful that this day does not close upon you. That means pay attention. Who are you listening to? Are you caught up in the seductions of this life? Easy to do. That's a human thing to experience. We've all been there. But what am I saying above the fray? What am I speaking to you? And when it comes to end times, let me add too, there are many people speaking to this issue. How many toes the Antichrist has? Oh my. But it's not about the rise of the Antichrist. It's about the return of the Christ. And therefore, how we live matters so that there will be no regret. We're all weak. We all have vulnerabilities. We can all make mistakes or fall in a ditch. That's just human. It's getting up out of that ditch, washing off and walking on that really matters. We can't be perfect, but we can borrow his perfection. But we can be aware and wiser in how we manage our lives and our involvement in our times. Jesus in John chapter 14 verses 1 through, C set, 1 through 3 says, Don't let your hearts be troubled, which is Jewish for saying you are going to be so troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust also in me, your shepherd. Your Savior, the one who's been one of you. I've worn your skin. I've been tempted in every way that you are. I get what you're up against. I am for you. I want to bring you into my kingdom and have you part of this eternal picture. So trust in me. I'm the one sent to do this. You're not the one trying to do it to make me happy. It makes me happy when you trust that I am the one who can save you. So don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. I am going there to prepare a place 
for you. And if I go and prepare this place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. So the idea being the Holy Spirit is now at work in and through our lives and in the church, in the world, but one day that cup will top up and the Lord will come back and stop the oppression of corrupt government, intervene and stop conflict and war. He will intervene and bring balance where there was inequity and he will intervene and he will rescue the human race from the schemes of the devil. But until that day, pay attention so that you're prepared. Finally, with regard to getting back to Christmas at hand, the first promise fulfilled, this is what 1 John says about the Christ who came in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. The reason, the reason the Son of God appeared to us was to destroy the works of the devil. In your life where you've been robbed, misdirected, lied to and hijacked and embittered, destroy the works of the devil in the world around us, destroying the works of the devil is why he came, rescuing us. Jesus in Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. The comfort I have in these words, I didn't even know I was, but he did. And it's great that you can seek him and find him. How amazing he goes looking for lost sheep who don't even know better. Don't underestimate your prayers for other people. Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, he would come to give his life as a ransom for many. In so many words, in the great big melodrama-rama of our lives, Satan hijacked humanity and he kidnapped us and put a barrier of corruption between us and God. And even though God loved us, his perfection would annihilate our imperfection so the bridge could not be crossed until Jesus came, laid down his life to pay off the ransom that the door could be opened, that we could be made clean and embraced by God. It was an amazing ransom that he paid. First John chapter 4, verse 10. This is what is written about the Christ. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as payment for our sins. If you believe that he is that Christ, you become an heir of salvation. And Jesus said it very famously in his quote from John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, not the planet, but the people. For God so loved the world that he came into this world to give his life. And that whoever believes that he has done this, will not perish ultimately. That even if they die, they will yet live in God's eternal embrace and have life everlasting. Amen? Amen. So as I wrap it up, I'm looking forward to Christmas. Like I've said, sometimes they're really nice. Sometimes they aren't, but above the fray, there is a bigger drama. Casting my eyes to the heavens, I see a bigger story that reminds me. Today's dramas, they are real, but they are temporary. And I also want to be found very focused and faithful as I head into 2018, knowing that distractions will abound. But now that I am a certain age and the horizon line is a little clearer, I want to make my life count more. I want to live more focused. And... I also want to live freer, healthier. I want to be thankful for the good things God has given me, including my salvation. Having been saved a long time, a few decades, you can become cavalier and help me God never to be. Thank you for my Christmas present of being born again.
And I want to press in for more advancing the kingdom when I think of Pastor Marie's message a continuation of the concept of more from last week, that while the theme may technically end, the reality will not. Next year will be more and more advancement of the kingdom in and through our lives and through the vehicle of life in this city and nation and beyond. Much, much more is ahead in the advancement of the kingdom of God in infilling the cup of salvation. Much, much more. And therefore, I don't want to be slack with this season as we live in the shadow of the last of the last days. I want to live focused and free, and I hope you will join me in that endeavor as we go and have a good pav and frolic at the beach and enjoy our families. It's all good, but there's even something better up ahead. He promises. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Holy Spirit, today I've raved on, but I pray that in spite of all the stuff I've talked about, I pray that you speak the word that each one of your children needs to hear today. What word of encouragement? What word of illumination? What word of potential correction to spare them? What word of intervention? What reminder? What blessing and favor? What grace needs to come upon them? Speak in dreams. Speak in visions. Speak through the wisdom of your word, through the wisdom of good counsel. Speak, Holy Spirit. That in this season, we lift our eyes to see the bigger picture and remember you and your faithfulness, not just to the human race, but to each one of us. You are good. Come, Holy Spirit. You know, while our heads are bowed here, let me just read this to you, especially if you are on the fringe of faith. Maybe you've come along here because it is that time of year and Neighbors or family, they've prevailed upon you to come along, and so you're here. Here's what Simon Tugwell said years ago, and I really love this idea. He says in this quote, So long as we imagine that it is we who have to look for God, we must often lose heart. But it is the other way about. He is looking for us. And so we can afford to recognize that very often we're not looking for God, far from it. We are in full flight from Him, sometimes in high rebellion against Him. And He knows that, and He's taken it into account. He has followed us into our own darkness, there where we finally thought to escape Him. We run straight into His arms. So... No need to erect a false piety for ourselves to to give us the hope of some salvation. Our hope is in his determination to save us, and he will not give in. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.